As I mentioned, we're going to basically be starting a brand new series today, going through the book of Revelation. I'm excited about this, and hopefully you guys are too. Uh, Out of curiosity, I asked you guys to read the book of Revelation. I'm almost a little bit embarrassed to even know, but did any of you actually read the first few chapters of the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. Thanks to both of you. That's awesome. I appreciate both of you. That's great. Thank you. Um, Yes. Yes. All right. The rest of you, here's what we're going to do. We are going through the book of Revelation. So... What, I, what we're going to do right now is uh, we're going to give you guys a, a little reason why we're going to go through. I'm excited about it. It's going to be something uh, hopefully that will change our hearts, change our lives, change our perspective of God and what God's wanting to do in this world. Um, one of the unfortunate things with regard to the book of Revelation is that this is one of those books that ends up unfortunately causing a lot of confusion, controversy, chaos, when in reality the main thrust, main purpose of the book is actually to bring comfort and hope. It's kind of an ironic change of what the book is intended. It's to bring encouragement, to bring hope. We'll read this morning, to bring a blessing. Yet unfortunately it gets abused, misused, and then becomes sort of a subject matter of great contention and division. With that, one of the things that if you've ever been around sort of Christian subculture at any length of time, or walked into a Christian bookstore or even the religious section of Barnes & Noble, what you'll discover is that in time stuff, Book of Revelation stuff, is big. It's huge. It sells massively. And typically or traditionally what you'll find in the present day church, if you've been around at all, you'll find basically two massive extremes. One, one extreme, you'll find people that basically are really into the book of Revelation. They love the book. They're all about the beast and the number 666. And these are the type of people that think credit cards are part of end-time fulfillment, prophecy. And they love taking the morning newspaper and superimposing it over the book of Revelation. They're like, I can't believe it. Check it out. It's all coming true right here. And they read their newspaper through the Bible. And they're into movies that talk about end times type stuff. And unfortunately, these type of people love to argue. They have their very strong opinions. They love to bring division. And they're the type of people you walk up to and be like, hey, how's it going? I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? They're like, yeah. Are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? Where are you? I'm like, I love Jesus. Like, well, which are you? It doesn't matter what you, you know, it just doesn't matter, Jesus. What are you? Uh, In terms of your eschatology. It's a big fancy word for end times perspective. And these type of people have this tendency to live in mass paranoia. They're afraid. They're afraid of a lot of things. They're afraid of books. They're afraid of authors that publish big books. They like to blog a lot. They like to really get other people very stimulated and very afraid of all sorts of end times evil stuff that might happen. And what happens is it generates a lot of fear and a lot of people And these type of people oftentimes have a very loud voice. Now what ends up taking place is sort of the inverse of that that creates sort of the next type of extremism are the people that watch the mass extremists and they pull away from it. They don't want to talk about the book of Revelation. They hear the book of Revelation brought up in conversation. They break out in eye twitches and hives and they pull away and they want to disengage and run and they just don't want to talk about it. Sometimes pastors... 
uh, just avoid the book of Revelation altogether. They don't want to talk about it. And they just, they don't, they don't write about it. They don't talk about it. They don't preach about it. Uh, consequently, uh, their church, their people within their church typically end up thinking that the Bible actually has 65 books in it instead of 66 books in it. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is this. Is yes, I, I, I'm admitting, okay, I may have used a tad bit of hyperbole, just a tad, and a tad bit of sarcasm, just a wee bit, but what I'm trying to say is yes, there are massive extremes on both sides. I'm aware of that. I'm absolutely aware of that. My goal, my aim, our goal, our aim throughout this, I hope, is for us to really navigate through the two massive extremes and try to keep things in balance, perspective, and in check, and make certain that we're really getting the true heart and soul of this great book. That's my desire. Now, I want to say one last thing before we jump into this, is that there's basically three types of people when it comes to the book of Revelation. I already took it, looked at two extremes. Three types of people that typically are here, probably in this room right now, when it comes to the book of Revelation. First type of people are those that have very strong opinions about the book. Some of you, I know who you are. You're like, I, I know exactly what the book of Revelation is all about. All right? You scare me. All right? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because those types of people typically come across as very arrogant, staunch, and want to argue. All right? So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is this, is that there are those people that have got very strong opinions. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. But what I am saying is that have your opinion, but make sure that your opinion is balanced with the rest of 2,000 years of history. Okay? Here's what I'm trying to say. Is that the reality is there are a lot of very good, very godly men and women of God who love Jesus, who actually believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And while reading the Bible and loving the same God that we worship and serve, they come to very different opinions about the book of Revelation. It's just a simple fact, the way it is. I listened to a message, in fact, I'll probably be putting it up on my blog this week, so check it out on my blog, is uh, about a week and a half ago, John Piper, one of my favorite authors, he hosted an evening at his church called An Evening of Eschatology. Eschatology is a study of last things I ever said that. And what he does is he basically has three guys, uh, professors slash pastors on his show, or on this, not show, but on his stage, and uh, what they do is they interview. It's two hours. For most of you, you'll fall asleep 15 minutes through it, all right? It'll absolutely bore you to death. But for those of you that are interested in this type of stuff, I encourage you to check it out. What I love about this and the way John Piper does this is he basically brings all these guys out and says, all of these men love Jesus all of these men are deeply committed to the Bible, and all of these men come out at the end with very different opinions about the end times. And I love the fact that he allows them to have dialogue with each other, all right? I want to be that church, all right? I have convictions. I have convictions. This pastor has convictions about end time stuff, and they will be coming out through this. But what I want to say very clearly, categorically, from the very outset of all of this, is that we're all, you guys are all welcomed here. If you differ from me, that's okay. That's okay. If, if we have differing opinions about end time stuff, we still love each other. We'll still be deeply committed to each other. We will not be that church that separates and marginalizes people and pushes people out 
the doors because they have a different perspective of secondary issues. These matters, interpretations that arise in the book of Revelation, are secondary. Does that mean that they're not important? No, they're very important. But they're secondary. They don't have anything to do, at the end of the day, about whether or not you're going to be saved, or you're going to have faith in Jesus, or whether Jesus is going to accept you on the basis of grace alone. These are secondary matters. And I refuse to be a church that's going to divide over those types of things. So, that being said, one, there are those who have opinions. Have your opinion. Great. Have your opinion. But, let's also recognize that what's even more important than your opinion is Jesus. And that's what unites us. We love Jesus. He unites us. We can have opinions about different things, but we will choose to love one another even greater. The last thing that I would say about this, to those of you that have strong opinions and look down upon other people who don't have those same opinions, is this. Be nice. Just be nice. Be nice to each other. Let's be amiable. That's my point. Second thing is this. There are those of you that kind of still forming your opinions. You're still trying to work it through, still trying to figure it out. My guess would be that's probably the majority of you. You're still working on it. You're still thinking it through. What I want to encourage you to do is to continue to keep working through that. Keep thinking about it. Keep working through it. And what our goal is to do as we go through this is put the Bible forth, let the Bible speak, and try to formulate ideas through the Bible. All right? I'm not afraid of what types of opinions that you come to, as long as they're derived through the Bible. I mean, if you're like, dude, I had this vision from some strange angel, and he told me this is what the whole deal is all about, I will be very suspect of it, all right? It's probably a cult or a demon, all right? What I'm trying to say is as long as our viewpoints are being formed and forged through the Bible, hopefully... We can become amiable and we can work with each other in forming and sorting through our theological differences, ultimately getting to Jesus Christ, the bedrock and the cornerstone of our faith. The first group, those of you who got strong opinions, second group, those of you that are still formulating your opinions, (coughs) excuse me, the third group are those that are, you know, listen to the first two groups of people arguing all the time. And you're just like, you know, I just want Jesus, and I don't even have an opinion. You're a little bit kind of apathetic towards that. What I want to say to you is don't be apathetic. Don't be apathetic. Don't just listen to him and be like, oh, I don't need to worry about it. Look, the bottom line is this, is the book of Revelation's there. It's there. It's there because God wants us to read it. It's there because God wants us to be blessed by it. It's there because God intends for us to understand it. So my encouragement and exhortation to you is don't let... People that have loud mouths and very strong opinions and oftentimes don't use a lot of love and discernment and care and kindness dissuade you or push you away from forming an opinion. That's, that's what I want to say to you, all right? Don't let them bully you around, all right? This is my pep talk to those of you that are like a little bit skittish, like, I don't want to know. My pep talk to you is don't let the bully push you around. Get an opinion, formulate it. Work through it, let the Bible guide it, direct it, formulate it, and let's do this together as a church, as a body, so that we are coming together in the unity of Christ, ultimately rooted and grounded in love. Does that sound good? That's where I want to go with all this. So that's where we're going to head. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work at this great book. 
Jesus, right now I want to ask you that you would open our eyes. God, we just confess that um, that as a church, we've allowed these types of things to divide us. And that's not good. We just confess that, Lord. If we've been a part of that, if we've been that person, God, I, I just pray that we as a church would deal with that, that we would repent, that we would lovingly come around, that we would not divide. That's what we don't need is division. We've got enough of that already over silly things. We don't want to add good things that are intended to bless us and encourage us to be the catalyst that brings division. So we ask you, Jesus, right now that as we approach your word, that we would approach it with humble hearts, that we would approach it with a mentality that just says we want to be taught, we want to be humble, we want to learn, we want uh, the issues that are raised up ultimately to bring us back to uh, glorifying and exalting Jesus, uh, our Lord, our Savior, your Son. And uh, so we commit this morning in your hands, and we pray that you would not only help us today, uh, but you would also help us over the next several months as we study this and as we look through this and as we find ourselves tackling all sorts of uh, imagery and numbers and all sorts of foreign literature to us that we're often not normally used to reading in the New Testament. So we pray for your help and we ask all of these things in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. All right, here's where we're going to jump in. We're going to start basically with uh, date, authorship, and important facts so first of all, kind of asking the question, who wrote the book? Well, chapter uh, 1, verse 4 tells us John uh, to the seven churches. So John, the apostle, writes this book. John was one of Jesus' closest friends. If you remember, in the gospel accounts, John uh, had a brother, uh, James and John. And John basically lived around the Sea of Galilee. He probably was working for his dad who owned a fishing business. And one day, Jesus comes along and calls John to follow him. John follows Jesus and for the next three years. John was what's called an eyewitness. He watched Jesus up close. He saw the miracles Jesus did. He didn't just learn about Jesus secondhand. It wasn't as if grandma and grandpa sat down John and said, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. John was there. John saw Jesus. He heard the messages of Jesus. And for three years, that's what John had witnessed and saw. And so John was transformed by Jesus. He was impacted by Jesus. His life was changed. Uh, John became what was identified in the New Testament as being the disciple whom Jesus loved. So this wasn't just sort of like your average uh, disciple, disciple type relationship. This was like big brother, little brother. This was like very close friend to little guy type relationship. John was brought into sort of this inner circle, inner relationship with Christ. John loved Jesus. Jesus loved John. And on the night before Jesus was betrayed... Jesus had dinner, and the, uh, John was sitting right next to Jesus, which would have been a seat of honor. And Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about forthcoming events, part of which was going to be his betrayal. At that particular time, all of the apostles looked to John as if to say, ask Jesus who he's talking about. All right? Because they knew John had this close relationship with Jesus, that if Jesus is going to tell anybody, it's going to be John. So John leans his head back in Jesus' bosom, there's nothing weird or freakish about that. They would oftentimes recline on their arm, and John just puts his head back in Jesus' chest and says, who are you talking about? All right? Jesus tells them because there's a close relationship. Friends share with other people, other friends, secrets, good close information. That's the relationship John had with Jesus. The next day, 
and Friday when Jesus was betrayed and arrested and crucified, John was there. He watched as his best friend, as one of his closest companions, as one of one which he would actually consider his Lord. Uh, he watched him crucify. He watched him uh, beaten. He watched him suffer. He watched him die. And it was there at the cross that while all of the other apostles would have abandoned Jesus, they were afraid. They were somewhere off in the distance, in the crowd. Their faces were hidden. Where was John? John was at the very foot of the cross, right next to a couple different women, one of which was Jesus' own mother. There was a few women, Jesus' mother, and John. There was John. And just before Jesus passes from this planet, this earth, this life, he dies, he gives up his ghost, however you want to look at it, Jesus recognizes that one of the last and most important things for the firstborn son to do for his widowed mother, which most scholars believe Mary was widowed, all good Jewish boys, especially firstborn, always take into priority their widowed mother. Jesus is no different than any other Jewish boy, but Jesus does so on the cross. And what Jesus does, recognizing his widowed mother whom he loves, is going to be without her firstborn son in a few days, for a few days, he'll be back, but he'll be gone again. So Jesus is looking into the future saying, my widowed mother, whom I love, needs a good uh, caretaker, someone who I trust, someone who I can commit myself to, someone who I know would represent me well. And in that moment, Jesus turns to John and says, John, I want you to take care of my mother. Only close friends take care of a Jewish boy's mother. That's what John's relationship was with Jesus. John, uh, as the church continued to go forward, Jesus ascended into heaven. And 50 days later, the uh, Holy Spirit comes. The church is born in a lot of ways. The church begins to expand and grow. It begins to expand all the way into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, throughout Europe, uh, Alexandria, um, all around the world. And what was happening was the... Christian people were running into conflict with the world governing power at the day, which was um, Rome. And the way this worked was oftentimes what had happened was the Roman Empire uh, essentially started having emperors that would view themselves as king of kings and as lord of lords. In fact, they would even print that information onto their coinage. So every time you bought something or sold something and you ever had a coin in your hand, you realized by way of reminder of the coin that was in your hand, who was really in charge, or at least who thought was really in charge, and the Christian people felt that there was a conflict for their faith, because in their mind, there was only one Lord, and only one Savior, and only one King of Kings, and only one Lord of Lords, and it was Jesus. So the Jewish Christian slash church that was growing up and beginning to expand was finding itself uh, really out of place in a very hostile world, and as a result of that, there was mass persecution, by the time that John wrote this book, it's believed that most of the apostles were already killed and martyred. So here's John. Last guy alive. Most people believe he's around 90 years old when he's writing this book. He's an old man. Good old grandpa, Pastor John. He's got the stories. He can tell you all sorts of stuff about Jesus. And it was believed that John was arrested at some point in his life, according to tradition. And because he was preaching Christ, he would not bend his knee to Caesar, or worship Caesar, or admit Caesar was Lord of Lords, 
Uh, because of this, John basically was arrested. According to history, John was thrown into a big old hot burning cauldron of oil, and John never died. I believe, even though God uh, kept John alive, probably John's body bore the scars of being burnt, although he never died. So my perspective is that John, Grandpa, Pastor John, this old man, well into his 90s, who's been a faithful friend, companion, servant, preacher, pastor, teacher, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, and on the island of Patmos, while he's in prison, on this exiled island, he's given this vision, and he writes. That's the book of Revelation. That's what's happening. The date of this is debated. Some scholars believe it was sort of an early date, around 69 AD. Um, the reason for this is they try to uh, straightjacket the book of Revelation uh, as to fitting the events in AD 70. If you're familiar with history, in AD 70, the uh, city of Jerusalem was burnt down to the ground. It was utterly destroyed under the leadership of a general by the name of Titus, uh, and what had happened, it was just destroyed. And so people who believe in an early date actually believe that John is writing to those throughout the world, the Christian churches, who are about to undergo massive uh, tribulation at the hands of the Roman Empire uh, while they destroy their city of Jerusalem. Okay, I, that's putting you to sleep. So as we move on from that, the late date is in around 90 AD. The reason why most people believe, most scholars believe that this was around 90 AD is because most uh, early writings uh, shortly after the biblical era basically talk about the writing of Revelation being written during the time of a guy by the name of Domitian. Domitian was a leader that ruled around 90 to 95 to 100 or so, somewhere around there. And so therefore it's believed by most reliable sources, I actually hold to a later date that this was actually around 90, 95 AD. So that's about the, about the date. What are some of the themes throughout the book of Revelation? Here's four of them. Uh, four main themes. One, I think that's very predominant, is that God rules from his throne and is sovereign over all history. It's very clear. Throughout all history, God is the sovereign, ultimate, dominant ruler, leader over all things. Second theme, Jesus, who's the sacrificed lamb, has conquered Satan and evil. And you'll see this sort of juxtaposed and kind of interesting light throughout the book. Because in one of the chapters we'll look, uh, John's asking the question, you know, who's got the goods to unloose the scrolls and the seals? And then someone cries out, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John turns expecting to see a lion. And what does he see? A lamb. It's kind of strange imagery. Um, and the point, I think, is, is that some view Jesus as this great lion, but in reality, uh, as he came to earth, he was like a lamb. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And ironically, according to God's own irony, uh, it just so happens to be that this weak, miserable, what appears to be destroyed, overpowered, minimized lamb becomes the victor overall. That, that the very lamb that's oftentimes assumed as we killed them, we crushed them, the lamb, that weak thing's dead, actually becomes the very thing that conquers Satan and evil. Jesus conquers Satan and evil as a sacrificed lamb. The third thing we see in terms of the theme is that this world system, oftentimes typified by Babylon and the beast, is opposed to God and his people. This is significant. All right, 
we live in an age, we live in an era, and my personal observation is this, you might vary, it's just fine, but I believe the age in which we live in, we've lived in a lot of freedom, a lot of prosperity, we've been lulled into a belief, I believe it's a false belief, that somehow some sectors of the non-Christian environment in our world system actually are our friends. In my personal opinion, this is at the very heart of the problem of uh, Christianities or Christendoms or evangelicalisms marriage to the Republican Party. Take it for what you like. But I believe that even though there are some basic ideas that may sort of resonate on both sides, the Republican Party as well as maybe Christianity, in other words, there might be some issues that you would agree with, to actually think any type of party is actually the friend of Jesus' people is ultimately going to end up leading someone to a place of recognizing the, the, really they hated Jesus, therefore they will hate his people. And I think that becomes very evident throughout the book of Revelation. The church, Jesus' people, really don't, they might have some allies, but the allied relationships only go so far before they start destroying us. All right? I know Christians that are absolutely into Rush Limbaugh, there's forgiveness for you. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. I'm serious. I'm, I'm just kidding. But the reality is this, is that, you know, he might have some issues that we would agree with as Christians in terms of a fundamentalist type of a uh, right side type mentality. We might agree with some of those things. But the reality is, is not all of these people that are on public radio or uh, political radio are actually honoring the gospel. What I'm trying to say is that most of the people that some Christians would ally with and say they are our friends, at the end of the day, it's not the gospel that's being promoted, it's just an issue. Do you understand where I'm coming from? No. Okay, my point is this, all right? I'll go back to the theme. The world system that's typified by Babylon is, at the end of the day, not the friend of God's people. Not the friend of God's people. Might seem like the friend, but it's ultimately at the end of the day not the friend of God's people. You have anything against Republicans or Democrats? No. Love ya. Hope you guys are all here. I hope I didn't offend you, but I hope you hear what I'm saying. Last theme is this God's people will overcome just like Jesus overcome, overcame and will receive a new heavens and a new earth. This is important for you to understand. Jesus comes into this world. And it looks like he is overcome. It looks like he is destroyed. Is he? No. He overcomes. During the time in which John's writing his book, it looks like Jesus' people are being destroyed. It looks like they are at a disadvantage. It looks as if they are being overcome. It looks as if they're not going to make it. It looks as if you know, all the facts and all the evidence and all the weight of governmental powers are stacked against them. But the book of Revelation, in terms of its theme, is that at the end of the day, Jesus will be victorious. Because Jesus is victorious, Jesus' people will be victorious. And in the end, Jesus promises a new heavens and a new earth. Look, the bottom line is this. We live in a world that's broken. It's broken. Right? We try to fix it. I mean, I, I, honestly, that's the job, I should say. I mean, the main heart, main thrust, main goal of talk radio talk programs, talk TV shows, is we've got to fix something. Let's fix this world. Let's fix the world by having 
you know, people on the show that can tell us how to do it. They wrote a book. Here's what their book says. How to live according to this book will actually fix the brokenness in this world. The point that I want to make is this, is that we live in a world that is broken. It's broken. We try to fix it, but it still breaks. We live in a world that, because it's broken, people are suspicious of one another. We put locks on our doors because it's broken. We protect our stuff. We have alarms on our cars and alarms on our houses. We raise certain types of animals to attack certain types of people that break into our houses. We have guns loaded. We are always, for the most part, looking for means and ways of protecting our goods simply because we know it's broken. And we don't have a whole lot of confidence in the man or the system, right? So we feel we've got to protect ourselves because it's broken. But the promise of the book of Revelation is that at the end of the day, even though Jesus' people may suffer, may have setbacks, may find themselves attacked, may find themselves destroyed, may even lose their lives, at the end of the day, because Jesus won, they'll too win. That's really good news. And I know that we're a church that's really not prone towards like, crazy Pentecostal outbursts, but I want to say it's actually okay to say amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord at periodic, punctuated moments at any time throughout the message, even right now. It's okay, because there's a lot of good amen moments throughout the book of Revelation that you just listen to, you're like, that's really good news. That's really good news. Jesus will come again and make this broken world right. See? It actually feels good, right? That's the point I'm making. Is that yes, the world's broken. Because it's broken, God's people, God's children will be the subject of attack, scorn, hate, ridicule, mock, persecution, martyrdom, death, suffering. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. And just like Jesus, who died, who rose again, so will also be his church. We will not be resurrected into a broken world, but into a new world. That's really good news. A brand new world, a brand new heavens, in which God rules and reigns over all, in which sin does not have dominion over us, over our lives, over our marriages, over anything anymore. In fact, that's why the book ends or concludes by saying, and even God himself will come and place his finger on your face and wipe away your tears. That's how intimate and how beautiful God is in this whole story and this significant role in which God himself, the sovereign ruler, plays in the restoration of all things to his glory, to your joy. Amen. I'm not done. I'm just getting warmed up here. All right. Let's talk about the type of genre that the book of Revelation is. I think this is very important. A lot of times people read the book of Revelation and try to interpret the book of Revelation just like 1 Corinthians or Ephesians or Thessalonians. I'm trying to say you can't. You can't. It's a different genre. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, throughout the Bible, if you haven't noticed this already, there's all sorts of different types of genre. Just like when you walk into Blockbuster 
or you go online and you rent your DVDs, or you go to iTunes and you're looking for certain, certain types of music or audiobooks, whatever. There are different genres. That means different genres speak to different things or address different things from different angles. The same is absolutely true of the Bible. Here's an example. Uh, the Bible has several different types of genres. Here's one, historical narrative. Book of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Sam, Kings, Chronicles. Uh, it's historical narrative. It means you read it like a story. Why? Because it is a story. It's a story. It's a true story about what God has done in redemptive history. You got law, you got wisdom literature, poetry. Um, if you've ever taken, say for example, wisdom literature, Proverbs, and if you try to outline Proverbs like you outline Ephesians, you can't. If you try to teach through Proverbs like you teach through Romans, you can't. You just can't. It is absolutely broken. It's not meant to be read through like that. It's not meant to even be taught like Romans. It's a different genre of literature. It's intended to be read in a different type of perspective. We have the same thing in our culture, all right? I like satire. You guys have read The Onion? Yeah? Okay, what if you read, what if you read Shakespeare's sonnets like The Onion? Through, through the lens of the genre, like The Onion. Or you read the evening news through the genre of The Onion, like, you know, satire. Your, your world would be pretty messed up, all right? I think they even have, like, clinical names for that, all right? My point is this, is that we live in a world where we normally don't necessarily think through how we translate different things. Meaning, when you watch, sit down and you watch, like, sci-fi, you're not sitting down watching sci-fi and... and, and, and interpreting it as historical narrative, are you? You're like, oh, no way. Once in a galaxy far, far away, this actually happened. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think anybody actually thinks Luke Skywalker actually lived. I mean, it'd be pretty cool if he did, all right? But the point that I'm making is this, is that nobody sits down and they're like, okay, let's see. Now, what kind of genre is Star Wars? Oh, that's right, sci-fi. I gotta like, I gotta watch it through a sci-fi lens. Nobody does that. We just naturally do it. It's part of our culture. It's the way that we, we don't even think. It's like breathing. Nobody stops and like, that's right, in, out. You know, it's, we just do it. It's just natural. And it is the same way when we read certain books or we uh, watch certain movies. And if we read something and we're like, this isn't making sense. I'll give you an example. I was reading a satire blog a couple days ago and I didn't know it was satire. Have you ever done this? I was reading this, and I was reading this post, and I'm like, it, it was like really thick uh, in terms of its um, sarcasm, and I was reading, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is ridiculous. I was getting really upset, because I was reading it, and, and, and I'm, I couldn't believe it, and then finally, I'm like, this can't be right. I started looking at it, and I, I read like the about page, and I read it, and said that this is satire and sarcasm. I'm like, oh, okay, that all makes sense now. In other words, it put everything into the proper perspective. It allowed me to categorize the type of blog that it was, the type of literary genre that I was trying to convey. The same is true for the Bible, is what I'm trying to say. The same is true for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation fits a genre that's called apocalyptic. However, it does also have some genre in it that carries sort of epistle type of concept as well. Chapters 2, chapter 3 is epistle. Meaning, Jesus writes a letter. It can actually be taught and read and outlined. 
just like he outlined Ephesians. You'll see when we get there. But the rest of the book of Revelation, I personally don't think it fits the same type of epistle type of genre. You have to look at it as apocalyptic literature that's full of imagery, full of numbers, full of pictures, symbolism. In fact, it's been said by many scholars that some scholars uh, debate as to how many allusions there are, but they believe that there's between 200 to 400 allusions to Old Testament passages throughout the book of Revelation. All right, now think about this. If there's 400, there's only 400 verses in the book of Revelation. And if you calculate every verse in there, it's about 400. That means if there are 400 allusions, no straight out quotes from the Old Testament, but up to 400 allusions of Old Testament, as well as some scholars even believe New Testament passages, book of Hebrews and other passages, which is significant, again, because it tells us if Hebrews is alluded in the book of Revelation, it means that it was written after the book of Revelation, also means that John, who wrote the book of Revelation, had some knowledge of the writings of the writer of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul. So the point is this, is that if we have a hard time reading the book of Revelation, and we're all absolutely confused by it, you got to understand, it was written to an audience of people that were probably very well versed and grounded in their Bibles. So when they read it, and they read all these allusions or uh, flashbacks or flash forwards or whatever, if you would, to different pictures or uh, ideas or images throughout the Bible, you have to understand it, it would have made a lot more sense to them than it does to us. So when we read it, we get confused, we freak out, five-year-olds wake up in the middle of the night and they've got nightmares. The point is that what we need to do is remind ourselves the problem's not with the book, it's with our ignorance of Bible language, okay? So this comes becomes sort of the, the rub for us. Like, what do we do? Like, this is where most people sort of check out, like, oh, Revelation's too hard. There's no way I'm going to learn the Bible. No way I'm going to learn all this stuff. So we just push it aside. And what I'm trying to say is let's not do that. Let's try to understand the Bible. Let's rise to the occasion. Let's challenge ourselves. Let's recognize that this is from God. It's a gift from God for us to learn to grow in. As, and if that means that we need to increase certain areas of our knowledge and understanding of biblical imagery and of biblical pictures, and a biblical metaphor, and idiom, then my challenge is that we would do that, okay? So, with that, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, numbers and symbolism, real fast. Uh, book of Revelation's really full of a lot of this. Um, numbers, you'll see, uh, number six comes, and when the number six is uh, said in sort of a triple way, it's a way of basically emphasizing it. Um, Hebrew language or some of the other languages that perhaps would have been used, the way that they would have emphasized something is not with a, an apostrophe. They would just say it three times. For example, if you want to convey the holiness of God, you don't say God is holy with an apostrophe at the end. That's not how Jews did it. They would say God is holy, holy, holy. All right? And when you want to convey that somebody's very evil, and he's got the number of man, which is six, and you want to convey evil and manliness, and just up from the ground that is devoid of, of divine goodness, you say six, 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 all right? So imagery and numbers is something that you're going to see a lot throughout the book of Revelation. Um, symbolism appears all over the place. Again, when you're looking at apocalyptic genre uh, literature, 
you got to understand a lot of this stuff is symbolic. So somebody asked the question, so do we not read the Bible or the book of Revelation literally? It's a good question. It's a great question. Depends on what you mean literally. All right? <laughs> that sound like, might sound like a politician's type way of getting out of something. But what I'm trying to say is this, is that if you mean literally, meaning we just take it exactly for what it says, then I think we're going to find ourselves being led to some false concepts that were not intended. For example, Revelation chapter 1 says Jesus uh, is, has a sword coming out of his mouth. So question is, is it literal? Is Jesus actually standing in heaven with a massive sword sticking out of his mouth? Or is that symbolic? Does it speak of something else? Is it symbolic imagery depicting something even more weightier than just simply a graphical image? That arises and appears a lot throughout the book of Revelation. So we want to be careful about how we understand this type of stuff. So in some ways, yes, literal, but also in more so ways a lot throughout the book of Revelation, especially in apocalyptic literature, symbolic. But symbols oftentimes refer to literal things. So the issue is digging through all sorts of idiom and metaphor, biblical idiom and metaphor, and getting to the rich literal meaning of the text. You guys following so far? Crickets. All right. Cricket sound. Let's finish up this. Book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. Here's where we jump in. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm stop right there. The word uh, revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, means the revealing or the unveiling. Apo means to come out from behind. Lipsis means to uh, some clothing come out from behind clothing. And this idea is that it is the unveiling. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not marks of beasts. It's not uh, destruction of the world. It's not about horsemen riding on horses, swords coming out of you know, other guys' hands, and vultures circling around. It's ultimately about Jesus. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. We don't want to miss Jesus. A concept of the book of Revelation that emphasizes an imminency of fear and paranoia and puts Jesus in the margin, I feel, is close to, although depending upon the heart, Antichrist. Jesus is meant to be the center of the text. He's meant to be the main purpose of the book of Revelation. We want to make sure we don't miss Jesus in the book of Revelation as being the main subject matter. So he goes on and he says, The revelation of Jesus which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made known by sending his angel to his servant John. And John tells us, he says, Who bore witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Then he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So John finishes this prologue by basically saying, one, the book of Revelation is about Jesus. Two, those who read out loud this text, those who listen to it, and those who obey it will be blessed. It's, one of the, it's the only book... In the whole Bible, that basically promises a blessing. In fact, seven times, again, an, an important figure, an important number throughout the book, seven times God promises or announces blessings upon people. I want you to listen to how God 
does this throughout the book. Again, I think there's significance to this. Uh, Take a look at the first few. Next slide says this in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. So it points out, those who die in God, those who die in the Lord are blessed because they're part of God's eternal kingdom. They will be comforted by God. That's the picture. You know that if you die and you are trusting Christ, you will be comforted. If you die and you are not trusting Christ, meaning today in this life, you have not come to a living relationship with God, meaning you love God, you love His servant, Jesus, as your Savior. If you, if you die, you will not be blessed. You will be in torment. That's what the Bible teaches. Some other word, versions or translations will call it hell. The point that Jesus makes I think through the text is those who die in God are happy, are blessed. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go out naked and so be unseen or so be exposed. I think the point that he's making here is that those who are paying attention, those who are observing, those who are awake, watching Jesus, they have their eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, they won't be caught literally with their pants down. That's what he says. They won't be caught. Maybe that's where that phrase comes from. You won't be caught with your pants down. You will be blessed. You will be found by Christ complete in Christ. You won't have any reason to be ashamed or embarrassed. That's the point. Uh, The next thing. Next slide says in Revelation 19 verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you know that at the end of time, when everything culminates, uh, we as Americans, we love food. In fact, we love food so much, we created the buffet. We are a fat people, and we love our food. It's that simple. In fact, we love it so much, we make it our idol. But there will come a day when Jesus will actually redeem us, and he will pry our fingers off of our idol, and food will actually be seen for what it's meant to be, meaning a very good meal to sit down and to be enjoyed with a lot of people we love, particularly Jesus. And Jesus promises at the end of time, food will not be an idol, there won't be any more idolatry, but we will use food as a means to enjoy company of those whom we love. And he says, if you're invited to that, if you come to that meal, it's better than Taco Bell, all right? It's very, very good. You will be blessed. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Do you know that one day, your body that you live in currently right now will die? You will die. You will go into the grave, but yet your soul will continue to live on. Your body that you live today So think about that. Next time you go work out, women, next time you put makeup on, older women, next time you Botox up, whatever, all right? Think about that. All the money you invest in your body today, it's kind of wasted, to be really frank. I mean, it's okay to work out. Bible says bodily exercise profits little, all right? It might work for a little bit. The reality is, the older you get, and the bottom line is the more we're prone to like elastic waistbands, right? 
we just, we just, we just are, are expanding and not expanding in the way of our soul meaning to expand. The reality is, is our bodies will die. Jesus promises to those faithful to serve and love and trust him, he gifts them with a new body. It's called the resurrection. Those who come to that resurrection will be blessed. They will be given a new body that will last forever in a good brand new world without sin, without shame, without evil, without tears, without pain, all of the things that make the good things in this life eclipsed, right? Jesus says all those things will one day be gone away and all that will remain are all the good things that flow from the good God. Last one is this, verse 7 of chapter 22 of Revelation. He says, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. Kind of begins, ends where we begin. The point that I want to make is this. Is really, I think Jesus intends for us to receive blessing. He intends for us to receive blessing. You've got to ask the question, how is it that God gives blessing? How does God do this? How does he accomplish this? How does he, he accommodate this? Because we live in a world that we know things are broken. And we also live in a world that to some degree, more or less, Here's the echo of Eden in the distant, meaning we know that there is a path to blessing somewhere out there. So we try to find that blessing, and we think blessings found in a relationship here, or by having kids here, or by getting married here, or by completing my degree here, and getting a good job, making a lot of money there, or by having a nice car. And we think that those are going to be the pathways to blessing. And that's where we basically fall short and we end up always at the end of the day being let down and broken. Because those things, though some of them may be good, they do not have the eternal strength to sustain the weightiness of your soul. Only Jesus does. And so the blessedness that God promises, you have to hear this comes from a God who himself is happy. The Bible teaches us that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We call him a Trinitarian God. And within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is community. God is in fellowship with himself. The Father loves the Son. Jesus said so. The Son loves the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And these three are in harmonious symphony and beautiful rhythmic fellowship throughout all eternity. And God, in his own good overflow of love, created man, you and I, made in his image to partake in fellowship with him. That's why God created us on this earth originally in the Garden of Eden. To live with him, to love him, to know him, to fellowship with him. But the basic bottom line foundation of our sin that was brought about through our father Adam and our mother Eve was they basically preferred something created to the creator. That sin is an offense to God. To basically say, God, I would prefer 
disobedience to have something other than you. And what happens is this breaks the harmony. This breaks the fellowship. This breaks the unity. Man now for the past several thousand years has been living in broken fellowship with the triune God. God in great love enters into this creation. Into this world. Suffers. Dies. And ultimately Paul would say something like this. That God now is renewing us after the image of his son, bringing us into fellowship. You have to understand this, that the blessed, happy, joyful God who created us to share in that happiness and joy, who we had turned away from that God and preferred our other things to him, God is now seeking to restore and renew those. How? Through Jesus Jesus comes into this world to seek and save those who are lost, to take those who have brought about an offense because of the preferring other things, to bring them back into fellowship with the everlasting God. And that's where blessedness, joy is found, is in God. That's the gospel. This is why Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, God's entrusted to me the gospel of the happy God. If you have grown up in a family where mom or dad taught you that God's always angry, hates you, and wants to destroy you, I'm sorry your mom and dad misrepresented God. If you grew up in a church where somehow that's the implication or the picture that you got is that God is probably just like the angry pastor, and that's the picture you've had, you've had a misrepresentation of God. Yes, God hates sin. He does not minimize his anger and wrath towards it. But in the meantime, he is patient with us, seeking to save us. And he does so through Jesus, bringing us back to himself. At the end of the day, guys, Jesus, for whom the book of Revelation is all about, is about the fact that Jesus will be victorious. In the same way as we live in a world that's broken, that it looks like sometimes Christians are losing. We are losers. We are being shamed and shunned and put down and destroyed and mocked. In the very same way, God himself entered our world and did the exact same thing that we ourselves are facing today. This is not a God that shouts from heaven, orders for us what to do. This is a God that's personal. He enters into our world, into our life, takes upon our flesh and blood, feels our pain, pays our sin, ultimately to bring us back into fellowship with the triune God so that we too would be blessed. Do you understand how silly it is to hold on to things and prefer other things other than God? They don't sustain your soul when the blessed Father, blessed Son, blessed Spirit are actually offering life to those that would come to the Son. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to God joyfully, happily, because God's joyfully and happily given to us. We're going to sing joyfully and happily to God. You know that there's a passage in the book of Zephaniah? One of those passages in the Bible that probably never gets open to, but it says, at the end of time, God will stand in their midst and he will rejoice over them with singing.
I want you to picture and imagine and think of your God singing joyfully over his redeemed sons and daughters who are marred, destroyed, defiled, shamed, broken, shattered because of sin, but have been rescued and brought back into fellowship with this blessed, happy God, all because of Jesus, all for Jesus, all sustained in Jesus, all glory to Jesus. That's what we get to sing about. Calvary Slow, it's okay to be happy and to be joyful, all right? In heaven, praise will be very loud. If you're somebody that's like, can you turn the volume down? You will, heaven will take a little bit for you to get used to, all right? Praise is very loud, very loud. I hope that we get better at singing worship to God because God is so great, so worthy to be praised. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to Jesus, to God for what he's done for us. If you're one of our guests, don't feel any obligation to give. But if you're called to your church and you want to give joyfully, give joyfully. We're going to sing to God because of what God has done for us through Jesus, his great and exalted son, who we're going to get to see a lot of over the next few months as we study this great book. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us. We worship you. We exalt you now. We use our energy now to give praise and honor to you.